Welcome, and thank you for joining Latter-day Stone Catchers, where we believe the gospel is love-centered and stones should be caught and never thrown. My name is Jeff, and whether you're joining through the podcast or on YouTube, I'm glad you're here. I am super excited again this week because we are starting the Sermon on the Mount and what's called the Sermon on the Plain in the Gospel of Luke. The chapters we're studying are Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, which includes what is commonly called the Sermon on the Plain, includes a lot of the same teachings that are in Matthew's chapter 5 and 7, some major parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Most of us are much more familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, but there are some particular things about the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6 that I really like and will talk about. Rather than going through each one individually, we'll kind of go through all of the teachings at the same time and make note of where there are some differences between the two accounts. Now, it's possible that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain as complete and whole teachings at one time, but it's also entirely possible that Matthew and or Luke gathered a lot of different teachings from Jesus and put them together as if they were given at one time. Either way, it doesn't matter. They're teachings that they recorded from Jesus Christ, which are wonderful. Before we jump into the chapters, I think it's important to note that both Matthew and Luke are writing from slightly different perspectives. Matthew's gospel is really aimed towards Jewish people and really trying to show them that Jesus is the Messiah, that they should leave their old ways of following the law and instead follow Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Whereas Luke's gospel is really aimed more at Gentiles rather than the Jewish people specifically. And we can actually see that in the way that they approach some of these teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's version and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's version. Now, as you may have guessed from the different names of these teachings, in Matthew's version, it says that Jesus goes up on a mount, or at least upon some raised rocks, to teach those who he's speaking to. Where in Luke's version, it says that he was on a plane, or on equal footing, or an equal level, with the people that he was speaking to. One reason I think that Matthew makes special note of the fact that Jesus went up on a mount is that it was very traditional within Jewish culture that you received words of God or revelation while you were up on a mountain. So for Jesus to go up on a mount before giving these teachings has special significance. Think about Moses going up on Mount Sinai, for example. The word of God came to him while he was on a mountain. And so Matthew is making the case that the word of God is coming to these people listening while Jesus is on a mountain. Another interesting thing about Matthew's account is that there are a lot of biblical scholars that believe the Sermon on the Mount is the first of five different discourses or sermons within the book of Matthew that are sort of meant to match up to the five different books of the Pentateuch. That's just another very subtle way that Matthew is showing that Jesus Christ is the new law, that as the Messiah, he is fulfilling the law. In fact, he'll specifically mention that in his account of Jesus's teachings and we'll get into those a little bit later. With that introduction, let's jump right into the Beatitudes, which are at the beginning of both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. And with the Beatitudes, I actually want to start in the book of Luke, the Sermon on the Plain, because the Beatitudes that Luke includes, there are fewer of them than in the book of Matthew, and they're a little simpler. In the Sermon on the Plain, in Luke chapter 6, these are the Beatitudes, and they're in verses 20 through 23. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. 
Blessed are ye when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner did their fathers unto the prophets. And that's all the Beatitudes that are recorded in Luke chapter 6. Jesus mentions the poor, the hungry, those who weep, and those who are hated or separated from company because of the Son of Man's sake. Those are the only four that Luke mentions in his account. Now, if we flip over to Matthew's account, we'll hear some of those same words, but Matthew adds a little bit extra in the way he records them. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So they both have the same structure, a list of beatitudes or groups of people who are blessed or happy, and then a promise that even when you are rejected of others, that your reward in heaven will be great. Now you may have noticed the difference when I read those, but it's interesting that in the Matthew version, when he mentions that the poor or the hungry are blessed, he adds poor in spirit or those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. So Matthew's version has a slightly different twist on it than Luke's version. And I think it's very important to consider both. If we remember from what Jesus said in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he said that he was sent to the poor, to the captive, to those with broken hearts. And those are very physical, temporal things that people are dealing with. He is sent to help them, as well as being sent to help those, as Matthew records it, who are poor in spirit or who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let's remember that Jesus Christ is here to establish the kingdom of God, a place where there are no poor, where everybody is treated equally, where everybody is of one heart and one mind, and we're united in our love and worship for our heavenly parents and the healer, Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God isn't just spiritual, it's also very much taking care of people's physical needs. And Elder D. Todd Christofferson has a great quote where he mentions that we cannot wait for these things to just happen, that we have a responsibility to make these things happen. We definitely aren't there yet. We need to keep working towards that, being of one heart and one mind and having no poor among us. I think one reason that Jesus is telling those who are poor, those who are hungry, and those who weep will be blessed is because in the kingdom of God, they will be blessed. We have a responsibility to take care of everybody within the kingdom of God. If the poor and the hungry and those who weep are not being blessed, then we have not established the kingdom of God. Jesus is promising these people that in the kingdom of God, they will be or they are happy. We have a responsibility to make sure that that is fulfilled by specifically blessing the poor, the hungry, and those who weep. Another thing that really sticks out to me in these verses is when it mentions in both versions that those who are hated or reproached or even separated from company 
because of the Son of Man. Now, for most of my life, I understood that to mean that if I believe in Jesus Christ and because of that, I am hated or people separate me from their company, that I will be blessed. But more and more, I think we're in a situation, especially in the United States where I live, but I think other countries as well, where Christians are no longer the minority. And it's entirely possible that because of our misunderstandings of what Jesus taught or, or our imperfect application of those things, we may actually be hating or separating people from our company because of our misunderstanding about Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is much worse than the other situation that I mentioned. In the first way to look at this verse, it means that you are hated or separated from people because of your belief in Jesus Christ. Now, that can definitely happen, and that's a difficult situation to deal with. But much harder is when somebody who claims to represent Jesus Christ or speak for Jesus Christ or even just says that they're interpreting scriptures or the teachings of Jesus Christ tell somebody else that they are separated from God or that they are hated or that there is something terrible about them that God does not love, that is much, much worse. We should never, in the words of Luke, hate people, separate them from our company, or cast them out as evil because of Jesus Christ. If that's what we're doing, then we have totally misunderstood the gospel of Jesus Christ and we are taking and using his name completely in vain. I am not aware of anyone that Jesus Christ ever separated from his company. He included, taught, healed everyone. And we should do the same. Think about all the people in Jesus' day that were excluded, but he came and healed or included. They cast out lepers, but Jesus healed them. They hated Samaritans, but Jesus used them as examples of righteousness. They crowded Gentiles out of the temple, but he cleansed the temple and made room for them. They also made it nearly impossible for the poor to participate in meaningful temple worship through donation and offerings. Jesus flipped those tables of inequality. They excluded women and treated them as property. Jesus not only included them as his disciples, but called them as special witnesses. Jesus doesn't exclude anybody who wants to be with him. That is something that we do that we desperately need to stop doing. We should absolutely never exclude anybody in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know if there is anything worse that could be done in his name. Before we move on to the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting that in Luke's version, right after the Beatitudes, he claims woe on those who are the opposite of the things that he just blessed. It says, Woe unto you that are rich, in verse 24, for ye have received your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Some potentially piercing words there that could cause some introspection. We are rich, full, or don't mourn, or are spoken well of by everybody. There's something wrong. These next few teachings are only in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and not in Luke chapter 6, the Sermon on the Plain. But we'll get back to that later. In verse 13, he teaches that ye are the salt of the earth. Now, if you think about the role of salt in cooking or in a dish or really in any other application, the role of salt is not to make everything else around it become salt. 
that would make for not only a disgusting dinner, but very high blood pressure. Not what we're going for. The role of salt is that you add just a little bit and it makes the entire dish better. Salt was also often used as a preservative. It didn't turn the meat that it was preserving into salt, but it helped to preserve the meat. Our role as disciples of Jesus Christ isn't to make everybody look and act exactly like us. We don't need a world full of salt. What we need are devoted disciples of Jesus Christ going into the world and making it just a little bit better. That is what the role of salt is. And that's why I think Jesus is teaching that we should be the salt of the earth. Our goal shouldn't be to make everybody just like us, but because of us, the world should be just a little bit better. Next, Jesus tells his disciples that they are the light of the world. We recently just read John chapter 1, where John the Baptist teaches that Jesus is the light of the world. It's interesting here in the Sermon on the Mount that now Jesus is telling his disciples that they are the light of the world. And we definitely can be. John chapter 1, where it tells us that Jesus is the light of the world, also says that Jesus Christ lighteth every man that cometh into the world. But we can only bring light to the world in so much as we point people towards Jesus Christ. None of us on our own is light. We have light given to us from Jesus Christ. And while Jesus is teaching that we are the light of the world, I don't think our purpose is to be a light to others. Our purpose is to point others towards the true light, the source of light, which is Jesus Christ. If any person or any entity is ever saying that they are a substitute or a stand-in or can be considered to replace Jesus Christ, we need to know that that is absolutely wrong. Nothing can stand in for, substitute for, or be in the place of Jesus Christ. He is the light, and we can bring light to the world only in so much as we point others to him, rather than trying to stand between others and him. So those are two teachings that Luke's version does not include. And then Matthew goes into a section that seems very carefully crafted just for his Jewish audience. There will be six things that Jesus specifically mentions are in the law in the Hebrew Bible, and then Jesus will expand or refine what that law requires. It's important before we get into these sections to note that Jesus in no way says that he is destroying the law. He actually says in verse 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He's not destroying the law. He's not saying it no longer applies. He's going to expand it and help us understand what it was originally intended to accomplish, which we as humans probably twist anytime we're given a specific commandment. Before we jump to any of those specific items, I want to take special note of Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Let's read the verse and I'll tell you why. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, for whatever reason, Matthew seemed to have a particular bone to pick with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes. As I mentioned at the beginning, Matthew is writing towards a Jewish audience and he's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, that they should follow him and his teachings and leave anything that is preventing them from coming to Jesus Christ behind. 
And while I'm sure that there were some religious leaders of the day that rejected Jesus Christ, told others not to follow him, to assume that all of them were that way is a gross stereotype that we really need to leave behind. Verses like this, which seem particularly prevalent in the book of Matthew, have led to anti-Semitism, which absolutely needs to end. I think it's important for us to remember that Matthew, though he walked and talked with Jesus Christ, was also just a man. And I think in these verses, we can see some of his fallibility. He seemed to find it much simpler to just use the Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes as examples of things that we should not do, rather than specifically speaking to the actions that Jesus Christ was saying that we should avoid. And that can be very hurtful to those who are of the Jewish faith. It's something we need to be aware of, it's something we need to stop, and it's something that we really need to stand up for our Jewish siblings in all settings. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to stand up for and testify of our Heavenly Parents' love for everybody, no matter what the setting, especially those who are so devoted to their faith as our Jewish siblings are. I will admit that I am still learning. There are times that I slip and use stereotypes around scribes and Sadducees and Pharisees, and I really am trying to work on that. Please be patient with me, but let's all try to be a little bit better than maybe Matthew was. We can't go into Matthew's mind and know exactly what he was thinking when he recorded verses like these, but what we know is that Jesus Christ would never want us to mistreat anybody, especially because of Scripture. Scripture should never lead us to mistreat anybody let alone the people who Jesus belongs to. Jesus was a Jew. So let's be sensitive to that and always stand up for all those who are around us, regardless of their faith or anything else. Okay, now let's get into these six specific things that Matthew records Jesus taught. This is the law as you currently understand it, and this is how I am expanding it and helping you to understand it even better. The first one that Jesus teaches is in verse 21. He says, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And then in verse 22, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Not only are we not supposed to kill, which seems fairly obvious, we shouldn't even be angry with each other. And then Jesus makes a very specific point to say that if you are going to the temple to make an offering and you are not reconciled to your brother, which I don't think just means your actual sibling, I think it means anybody, you should leave your gift at the altar, go back and be reconciled, and then go and worship in the temple. It reminds me of when Jesus quoted Hosea and says that he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Our sacrifices at the temple or other religious rites mean nothing if we are not reconciled to those around us, if we're not loving our neighbor. And Jesus is teaching that right here. The next one that Matthew brings up in verse 27, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But then in verse 28, he teaches that anyone who looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery in his heart. Again, expanding our understanding of the law. The point is to look at each other as children of our heavenly parents and think about how we can help them feel of their love, not to imagine ways that we can take advantage of or use them for our own purposes. And the next one is in verse 32, excuse me, verse 31 and 32. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Verse 32 says, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, 
causeth her to commit adultery. So what the verse says at its surface is that unless there's some sort of sexual sin, there's no other reason to put away your wife for divorce. Now, unfortunately, I think that this verse has been weaponized far too often against individuals who have been divorced or who have even married individuals who were divorced. I think marriage was very different in Jesus' time. And he specifically mentions just putting away your wife. So he, he seems to be specifically speaking to the men here to say, you can't just do this for no reason. And I also think a bit of history from the Hebrew Bible is important here. In Ezra chapter 10, it records that while the Israelites were in captivity in Babylon, many had married outside of the house of Israel. And then when they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, they were told that they should simply leave their wives that they had married that were not members of the house of Israel. Sometimes I wonder if that specific approach to marriage and divorce is what Jesus, at least in part, is getting at in this verse. Not that there could never be a reason for a couple to get divorced, but that you shouldn't just leave or abandon your spouse for something that could be worked out. I will say that I am married, I have not been divorced, so I don't know what that feels like. But I do have family members who have gone through divorces and remarriages, and in some instances, multiple divorces and remarriages. And I think all of us need to be more understanding of those situations, not judge those individuals, and especially not use scriptures to condemn them. I do honestly think that there are some situations where divorce is the best option for everybody involved. If somebody is in an unsafe situation and a divorce needs to happen, this scripture should never be weaponized against those people to tell them that God wants them to stay. I don't think our heavenly parents want anybody to stay in a situation that is unsafe physically, emotionally, spiritually, or in any other way. So if you know somebody who has gone through a divorce or who is going through a divorce, never tell them that if they were closer to God or listened to the teachings of Jesus, they wouldn't go through with this divorce. That's not true. That's not helpful. Don't do it. This scripture should never be weaponized that way. That's enough on that one. Let's move to the fourth item that Matthew mentions, an old way of looking at the law and a new way. In verse 33, he says, Again, ye have heard that it hath been said of them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Now, some people may interpret this as saying that Jesus Christ is teaching we should never cuss. Maybe that's what he's teaching, maybe it's not. That's not how I read it. What I think the point of these verses are is that our word should mean something. We shouldn't have to say, I swear I'll do this. I promise I'll do this. I swear it'll be different this time. And I think what he says in a few verses later really supports that. It says, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than this cometh of evil. Our communication should be simple and people should know that they can trust what we say. To me, that's the point of these verses. The next point of the law that Matthew qualifies is one that we're pretty familiar with. In verse 38, it says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. These verses are so important in how we interact with other people. We should not seek vengeance, but I think there's an important clarification to be made here. 
There are situations where you or someone may be the subject of abuse. And in those situations, I do not think that it is right for us to tell somebody that they should just be turning the other cheek or that we should expect ourselves to just turn the other cheek. That is a situation that our heavenly parents would absolutely want us to remove ourselves from. They would not want us to stay in a situation that will only cause us and those we love more pain. That is not how this scripture should be interpreted, at least the way that I see it. That just doesn't reconcile with the way that I understand my heavenly parents. I think we have full right and even responsibility to remove ourselves from bad situations and to set healthy boundaries with people so we don't put ourselves back in bad situations. Now, if you watching or listening to this is somebody who has been through something terrible like that, I am so sorry. I cannot imagine the pain and the trauma that comes with going through an experience like that. Your heavenly parents understand. Your Savior Jesus Christ understands. They love you and they want you to feel that love, maybe even more so because of what you have been through. They want you to feel that love. Try to focus on that love as much as you can. There was a wonderful talk given by Kristen M. Yee in the last general conference. The talk is called Beauty for Ashes. And one thing she said in that talk is, on the path of forgiveness and healing lies a choice not to perpetuate unhealthy patterns or relationships in our families or elsewhere. To all within our influence, we can offer kindness for cruelty, love for hate, gentleness for abrasiveness, safety for distress, and peace for contention. To give what you have been denied is a powerful part of divine healing possible through faith in Jesus Christ. To live in such a way that you give, as Isaiah has said, beauty for the ashes of your life is an act of faith that follows the supreme example of a Savior who suffered all that he might succor all. And the last of these six expansions or refinements of the law that Matthew talks about is another very popular one. Verse 43 says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. This one teaching might make the most difference in our world if we could just follow it. We have such a hard time loving anybody who is different than us, let alone our enemies. We really need to let these words from Jesus Christ sink deep into our hearts, realize that he loves everybody and that we should love everybody. We should certainly never think that he doesn't love somebody. Jesus goes on in verse 45 to say, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? There's a fantastic quote from Adam Miller's book, Original Grace, that I think really applies here. It says, In Jesus' hands, the logic of the law is clear. Not good for good and evil for evil, but good for good and good for evil. And what's more, returning good for evil is not here positioned as an act of mercy that counterbalances justice. Rather, returning good for evil is justice. Returning good for evil is how you fulfill the law. 
So often we think of justice and mercy as opposites. But here in these verses and that quote from Adam Miller, we're being taught that the law is mercy. The law is to love our enemies. The law is to forgive. That is an incredibly expansive way to look at the law, and that is what Jesus is teaching. Luke's account doesn't include anything from the first four expansions that Jesus puts on the law, but it does include very similar teachings about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, which makes me think that those are really two that we should focus on the most. If we can get those two things right, it would literally change the world. Right after those teachings is a verse that I think is often misapplied and unfortunately in a very painful way. Next, Matthew says this, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I don't think that Jesus is telling his disciples that they have to be perfect in every aspect of the law. Let's remember that right before this verse, Jesus was talking about how our Heavenly Father gives love to everybody. He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sendeth rain to the just and the unjust. We should not only be loving those who love us, we should be loving everybody. And then Matthew records Jesus saying, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's not saying to pursue perfection in the law, at least the way I read it. He's saying to pursue perfection in loving everybody in giving mercy to everybody. And that makes perfect sense with what we read in Luke's version, because in Luke chapter 6 that corresponds to this verse, it's very similar but just changes one word. Luke chapter 6 verse 36 says, Be ye therefore merciful, as our Father also is merciful. So when we really put that verse in context and read both versions, Matthew's as well as Luke's, I think it brings us a better understanding of what Jesus meant. The purpose of the gospel is not to pursue personal perfection. The purpose of the gospel is to love everyone around us, to bring light to everyone around us, to be the salt of the earth, to help others feel the love that their heavenly parents have for them. That is what Jesus Christ is asking us to do. We could easily pursue personal perfection without bringing light to anybody else. That's a personal journey. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about bringing light and love to other people. That's what Jesus Christ did in his life, and I have to imagine that that's what he wants us to do with our lives. And that's where Matthew chapter 5 ends. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't end. It goes through in chapter 6 and chapter 7, but Luke chapter 6 actually keeps going. In the Sermon on the Plain, Luke doesn't really record anything that Matthew has in chapter 6 of his gospel, but it picks up in the very next verse, Luke chapter 6, verse 37, with some things that Matthew records in chapter 7 of his gospel. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 says, Judge not, and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. One reason I really like Luke's account of the Sermon on the Plain is that those verses come directly after the Be ye therefore merciful, which comes directly after loving your enemies, loving everybody. It's all the same message. We, we should love everybody. We should have mercy for everybody. We shouldn't judge. We should not condemn. And we should forgive everybody. Also from last General Conference was an incredible talk by Sister J. Annette Dennis. I want to read a quote from that talk as well. She said, 
How often do we judge others based on their outward appearance and actions or lack of action, when if we fully understood, we would instead react with compassion and a desire to help instead of adding to their burdens with our judgment? I have been guilty of this many times in my life, but the Lord has patiently taught me through personal experiences and as I have listened to the life experiences of many others. I have come to more fully appreciate the example of our dear Savior as he spent so much of his time ministering to others with love. Many talks have been given by our church leaders on charity, unity, love, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, and mercy. I believe the Savior is inviting us to live a higher, holier way, his way of love where all can feel they truly belong and are needed. We are commanded to love others not to judge them. Let's lay down that heavy burden. It isn't ours to carry. Instead, we can pick up the Savior's yoke of love and compassion. Before we move on from this verse, I will mention I know that the JST for Matthew chapter 7 reads something like, judge not unrighteously, but judge righteous judgments. I think unfortunately some people have taken that as authorization to impose judgments on other people, which cannot be what the Savior meant when he was teaching this. I do think there are important ways for us to judge, and I think Adam Miller speaks to this perfectly again from his book, Original Grace. I know this is the second time I've referenced it. If you haven't read that book, you really should. Because I've referenced it twice, I'll put a link to it in the show notes for the podcast, as well as below in the description for YouTube. You should really listen to or read that book. It's incredible. He says this about judgment. According to the logic of original sin, the purpose of the law is punishment. The law's purpose is to judge what is deserved. The law is a divine mechanism for judging who deserves to suffer or not and to what degree. The point of the law is accusation. The logic of grace, on the other hand, takes the purpose of the law to be love. The law's purpose is still to judge but now to judge what is needed. The law is a divine mechanism for judging what is needed to relieve suffering and liberate sinners. The point of the law is grace. If our heavenly parents want us to make judgments of any kind, I have to think those are the types of judgments that they want us to make. Not what somebody deserves based on what they have done or what is in their past, but rather what they need to relieve suffering and help them to feel the love of their heavenly parents. Those are the only types of judgments that we should be making. In verse 38, he goes on, Give, and it shall be given unto you. For with the same measure that ye meet, with all it shall be measured to you again. Jesus is telling us that however we treat people is how we are going to be treated, which lines up perfectly with so many of the other teachings that he gives in other parables. There's a wonderful short quote from President Uchtdorf that speaks perfectly to this. He says, Remember, heaven is filled with those who have this in common. They are forgiven and they forgive. Lay your burden at the Savior's feet. Let go of judgment. Allow Christ's atonement to change and heal your heart love one another, forgive one another, the merciful will obtain mercy. And that was from the April 2012 General Conference. We are not here to judge one another. We are not here to accuse one another. What we are here to do is love one another, to give mercy, forgiveness, and grace, never condemnation and judgment. This is what Jesus Christ is teaching, and I absolutely love it.
Now we are almost done, but there are two major teachings left in Luke chapter 6 that we have got to get to. The first is the famous mote and the beam verses. Let's read them really quick. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou hast beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. I remember very clearly reading this verse as a youth and probably even into my young adulthood and having the thought, what if I don't have a beam in my eye? What if the person I'm dealing with has done things that are worse than what I have done? He has the beam in his eye, I have the moat. So clearly I can see perfectly well to help them remove the beam from their own eye. I'm embarrassed to admit that that is something that I thought about these verses previously. If you felt the same way, I would love it if you would tell me I wouldn't feel so alone and silly. But those are some thoughts that I had around these verses sometimes. I have the gospel, therefore I don't have a beam in my eye. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, therefore I don't have a beam in my eye. How could Jesus know that no matter when I tried to get a moat out of somebody's eye, there's a beam in my eye? And suddenly it hit me, and I don't even remember when this epiphany came. But Jesus knows that anybody trying to remove a moat from another person's eye will have a beam because the attempt to remove the moat is the beam. Our judgment of another person's situation or another person's sin, that is the beam. We can never see clearly to help somebody remove the moat of their own eye if we're judging them for their situation. That beam of judgment and condemnation will always get in the way. We remove that beam by looking at others as our heavenly parents do, with love and compassion. Now, the last thing that we'll talk about in Luke chapter 6 is the wise man and the foolish man. A wise man will build his house on a rock. A foolish man will build his house on sand. This story and a relating scripture in Helaman chapter 5 verse 12 have taken on new meaning for me in my faith journey. My testimony used to be built on sand. And by sand, I mean anything that is not Jesus Christ. I think too often in our church, we think that those who build on sand are those who aren't members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or those who don't believe in God and Jesus Christ in the same way that we do. But if we believe what Helaman said in chapter 5, verse 12, the only rock that we can build on and rely on is Jesus Christ. If we have built our lives and our testimonies on anything else, it will not last. Jesus Christ is the rock nothing else. Not the church, not the prophet, not the priesthood, not the temple, not anything else but Jesus Christ. If we have built our testimonies on anything but the healer, the savior, the redeemer, Jesus Christ, it will fail. We cannot depend on anything else. As good as those things may be, we cannot depend on them like we can depend on Jesus Christ. I haven't talked about it much before, but my faith was almost lost because it was built on things that were not Jesus Christ. Although it's been a long and terrifying journey, I am so glad to have gone through it because now I feel like I am built on the rock of Jesus Christ. I feel like I am on that sturdy foundation that will never fail. I'm not built on sand. I'm built on the love, 
the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness that comes from my Savior Jesus Christ and that my heavenly parents sent him not only for me, but for every single one of my siblings on this planet. He is our foundation. These are some of the thoughts and insights that I've gained from these chapters. I love the Sermon on the Mount. I love that we get to just focus on teachings straight from the Savior Jesus Christ during this week of study. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. Please go and read them or listen to them if you have time. Remember, God loves you. I love you. Catch stones. Don't throw them. See you next week. If you're listening on the podcast, thank you so much for listening. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you coming back each week. If you're finding the podcast helpful and enjoying it, please recommend it to your family and friends. The more people we have catching stones in our congregations and our classrooms, the better we'll be. And if you haven't yet, I would also really appreciate if you could leave a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to. That's another great way to spread the podcast to more stone catchers. Thanks again for listening.